Good evening. Wednesday is always a tough crowd. Like, good evening. Now that I offended you, it's like even worse. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, we're talking about free will. What does the Bible say about free will? My intention this evening is not to remove any of the mystery between free will or human responsibility and the sovereignty of God. So there's a particular amount of mystery to the human as to how exactly and precisely man can be free and God can be completely and fully sovereign. And so tonight we're not going to walk away, I hope, having removed that mystery. I hope we will walk away embracing it and understanding those two things together as they relate to one another. So to do that, I want to start off with a quote from uh, T.J. Crawford. He was a professor at the University of Edinburgh in the 19th century, and he wrote um, in a book, Spurgeon versus Hyper-Calvinism. Uh, he has a great little quote in kind of orienting our minds as we begin a study like this, and he says this, This much indeed must in candor be admitted that we are unable to comprehend how an action that was certainly known to God before it was done should notwithstanding, be free in the performance of it. But then our ability to comprehend how anything should come to be is no sufficient ground for affirming that it cannot be. In the works and ways of God, in the operations of our own minds, and in the processes of our own bodies, there are many things which we know to be actually taking place without being able fully to account for them or to reconcile them with other things of the reality of which we are equally well assured. We have no cause to wonder then that this should be the case with the divine foreknowledge of human actions on the one hand and a free agency of man in the performance of them on the other hand. I think that's just a great statement and summary of, of kind of the ethos of us as we come to this topic tonight. There are just certain things that we will not be able and should not seek to reconcile fully. And this is one of them. And so I want to I start with a question. It's really kind of generic. It's two parts. The first is this. Do we really know what we mean when we say we have free will? And I say it's generic because I think you can interpret that how you please. Do we really know what we mean when we say we have free will? And if we do or even if we don't, does it come from a desire to lead others to better grasp the glories of God's grace experienced freely in Christ Jesus. Our understanding, our communication of the idea of free will, whether we have a, a very good theology or really no theology at all, is the purpose of that for us to grasp the glories of God's free grace in Christ. Because I think that's where we must begin, and that must be kind of our, our guide as we seek to look at this even biblically. Because if we find ourselves at any point not pointing to the excellencies of Christ and the freedom of grace therein, then we will misunderstand and misapply this doctrine to ourselves. So let's define a few terms first. <clears throat> These are my own definitions, and so you may disagree with them, and I think you have the freedom to do so. These are just generally what I believe about a few terms that we will be talking about tonight. The first is just sovereignty. 
I define sovereignty as the biblical teaching that God is king, supreme ruler, and lawgiver of the entire universe and of all of the contents therein. And over all of those things, God alone has complete control to act as he desires and chooses. So that means from the very smallest molecule, atom, bacteria, to the very largest planet, to something in between, an animal or a human, God is free in his sovereignty to act and choose anything he desires for any of those things. So if he wants a molecule to disappear, it is a good desire and action on the part of God to make that molecule disappear. If he desires a human to not actually come into the world, though it doesn't make sense to us why a baby would die in the womb, it is not a bad thing that that happened under the sovereignty of God. And so within the sovereignty of God, there is no bad thing that happens from him. He has complete control and everything he does do is a good thing in the cosmos, Robert. The next is free will. I define it, again, generically because I think, honestly, I like the term human responsibility better than the term free will. I think free will can be a bit misleading, and I think historically through Christian history, the term free will is actually not really liked that much. And so I think human responsibility is good, but either way, it's the ability to make choices in accordance with one's will and desire. The third thing is morality. Uh, this is just generic, common morality. It's the, the principles upon which one distinguishes right and wrong. The principles whereby one distinguishes right and wrong. And we understand Christian morality takes it a step further, and we say those principles are actually founded objectively in Scripture. And so everything we need to know of what is just and unjust, right and wrong, is objectifiably verifiable by the Word of God. And so we do not have merely good acts or merely bad acts. We have what God says is good and what God says is evil. And all of this will come into play as we, as we look here. And then finally, depravity. So we understand uh, in, in Reformed theology and in, in Calvinism, in really, um, honestly, much of Christianity, there, there is a doctrine of depravity. We believe, however, that it is a radical corruption, that it is a total depravity, and I think maybe the best term would be total inability on the part of humans. And so what does that mean? It means that man at his core being is corrupted by sin. So his, his mind, his soul, his will, his body, all of those things are affected by sin. And even personally and socially, there is the effect of sin in man's life. There is, there is nothing within the realm of humankind that is not affected by sin, right? Your, your disease, your whatever struggle is physically may not be because of your particular sin, but it is because of sin. The broken relationships you have, the, the difficulties of communication between husbands and wife, they may not be because of your personal sin, but they are effects and have been affected by sin. And so there is nothing in the terms of depravity that has not been touched by sin. And so 
let's move on to free will. And if I, again, if I say free will and human responsibility, it means the same thing. So, so let's look at free will. And I think to understand what the Bible says about, about free will, you have to understand the nature of humankind. And so Augustine gives us this, this really helpful kind of picture or, or pattern or platform whereby we can understand the various natures that man goes through. And he says that there are four of them. One of them is before the fall, one of them is after the fall, one of them is in the state of regeneration, and then one is in the state of glory. And so we're going to look at those and and we're going to find from those natures and from those, those, those states of man how sin affects him in each of those and how sin then affects his freedom to do whatever it is he chooses or pleases to do. So the question is, what determines will? Well, I think it's nature. I think it's the nature of humankind. And if that is the case, are there factors and causes that affect his will? That is, are there, are there things that are actually motivating or necessitating man to act in a certain way? Or is he free to act in any way he pleases and chooses at any given moment. Well, I think Augustine says that no, that's not the way that free will works. If we understand free will to work as sovereignty, then we have a total misconception of free will because we do not, like God, have the ability to do as we please because what we choose is not going to be good in every instance. Even in our perfected state, as we'll see with Adam and Eve, we don't choose always that which is good, and so we cannot be sovereign. We cannot be in a good world doing good things because we are not capable of that. So if that's true, is free will actually forced? Is it not really free will at all? And that's another thing that we're going to look at. So as we look here, Augustine says, no, free will is not forced. God in his sovereignty does not say, yes, I'm going to give you free will, but I'm going to make you do everything that I want. God actually does, in his sovereignty, put us in a state of freedom, and yet we're not free completely. There are things that affect the way we choose, even in our freedom. So let's look at that. The first is this. Augustine's first point is that the ability to sin and the ability, or the first point is the ability to sin and the ability to not sin. So this is the state before the fall. So that's a little bit confusing, and it's confusing because it comes straight from Latin, and if you, you want it, it's pas peccare, pas non peccare. So what, what Augustine is saying here is that in the garden, Adam and Eve actually did, before Genesis 3, have true freedom. They, they really were free. They were free to not sin. God actually created them with the ability to not sin but he also created them with the ability to sin. And so man truly did have a choice to do one thing or the other thing. And so as Augustine would say, and as as many other theologians would agree, that in the garden, man actually had liberty. He really was free to choose what he pleases, what he desired, and what he wills. He was unrestricted 
in his choice between choosing to sin or not to sin. And so let's look, Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Genesis 2, starting in 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat it, you shall surely die. So we see in one instance that man really is set up with the ability to not do that which will cause him to die. This is not a trick. It's not as if God is saying, hey, there's the potential of you to do this, but I just want you to go ahead and know you're not going to be able to do it. But the other side of the coin is that he also gives him liberty to choose to sin. So look at, look at chapter 3, verse 7. Then, after they took the fruit and ate, then the eyes of both were opened, that is Adam and Eve, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. So here at the fall, what we see happening is man doesn't lose his freedom. He loses his ability or his liberty. So he is still free after the fall to choose, yet he is not at liberty to choose between sinning or not sinning. Because in his choice of sin, he has given up his liberty to choose not to sin. And in doing so, he has found himself being bound not by a nature in which he is, he is perfect and at liberty and totally and fully free. He finds himself now bound to a nature which is under his choice of sin. And so as his nature undergoes a change, right? So this first nature is the ability to sin and the ability not to sin. As, he, as that changes, so does his free will, right? The, the, the will undergoes a change and is bound to the nature of sin. And so we see the loss of freedom happen. We see that he's not actually free to do everything that he pleases because for one, he is cast out of the garden and he is not free to come back into communion with God on his own. And so the freedom undergoes a major, major change here in the fall. Whereas he was able to, of his own volition, walk with God when God was there, he is no longer able to do so. And so this has major implications for us as we continue through the narrative of Scripture and as we understand our fallen sinful nature. And so we move to the second nature that Augustine gives us, and it's this, that that man is only able to sin. So he moves from being able to not sin and being able to sin, then being bound by one nature of only being able to sin because he's not free to choose God. And so this is after the fall. And so, so the fall into depravity is the enslavement of the free will. Right? It's not God forcing man to choose sin. He really gave him liberty to choose one or the other. So he didn't coerce him or he didn't force him or he didn't trick him or woo him into sinning. He really did choose that. And so man's will and desire is now changed. Sin, sin becomes the determining, the guiding factor in how man can choose. 
his fall into sin, his assumption of a sin nature only is now the thing which informs every desire and every free will that he has. And so he, he will not, on his own, choose to act in a way other than that. And so, so to, to, to show you that scripturally, let's look at Genesis chapter 8. This is, by the way, after the flood, this is after God has wiped out all of the earth because of their abundant and awful inclinations to sin. And this is what happens after that. Chapter 8, verses 20 and 21. So, right, God has eradicated sin. He's, it was really, really bad, and now we come to a point that we often overlook. Chapter, or verses 20 and 21. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Do you see that he struck them down? He, he says that, and then he says, I'm not going to do it again because actually, even after the flood, every inclination of fallen man is to sin, right? That's that binding of the nature. It's not not able to sin and able to sin. It's you have been bound by your choice and you are stuck and every inclination of your heart is to sin, And God recognizes it. He identifies it here. He doesn't paint over it. He doesn't look and say, well, you know, you guys really screwed this up. He is sovereign and he knows what will happen. He knows the free actions of man. And he has, in his eternal will, sought to sovereignly act accordingly instead of smiting us from the planet. And so, here's the thing, though. I, I don't want to confuse this with common morality because you, you will always receive the argument, well, then can no one do good? Of course we can do good if we are talking about the law of man. Any one of you can leave out of this place and you can put your turn signal on and if you don't, you should be arrested. You can turn with, in accordance with your turn signal, mind you, you Southerners, um, you can go and you can decide to stop at a stoplight and then you can get on a highway and choose to obey the speed limit. You have, in fact, done good things according to the law of man. But if we are talking about the law of God, then no one in this state of fallenness can do good because he cannot live up and complete the law of God. Because what is the law of God? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Any good thing you do according to the law of man does not translate over to you loving God. So do you see how you can do one thing that is good and yet have every inclination of your heart be evil to the things of God? And so moral goodness is like apples and oranges, right? We, we can't look at being able to do a good thing and be a good Samaritan or even to pay it forward and equate that with goodness that God requires in the Bible. Because the goodness that God requires really is the state of Adam and Eve in saying, no, 
in your liberty, don't choose sin. That is that which declares that you are God and not me. You need to choose me. And fallen man is unable to do so. So let's uh, look, look with me. We've got a lot of scriptures. Look with me in Psalm 14. I'm trying to keep it rolling too. Psalm 14, 1 through 3. And it's on the screen too. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. You will recognize Paul quoting that in Romans chapter 3. And if we don't assume it there, John chapter 8, verses 34. Jesus answering the Pharisees, he says, uh, or excuse me, the disciples, Jesus answered the disciples, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. All right, so we don't just find ourselves in this second state of only able to sin just because we are unable to choose out of it. It's because we are bound. We are enslaved. We have come into the captivity of this sinful nature. Augustine says this. He says, the free will has been so enslaved that it can have no power, or you can read freedom there, for righteousness. He goes on to say, without the spirit, man's will is not free since it has been laid under by shackling and conquering desires. So, so here's a, maybe a radical statement to you, but I think this far as we understand the state of Adam and Eve and then the state or their nature after the fall, I think this is a fair conclusion. That we still do have freedom of choice in our sin nature, but that it's not really freedom at all. It's bondage of the worst possible degree. And it's so bad and we are so bound by it that we believe ourselves in our fallen state to be able to do something which we cannot do. And that is please God. And so the crux of fallen, unregenerate man is that he walks around thinking he has the ability to do good, righteous deeds when in reality he is not. So we come to the third breath of fresh air state. The ability to not sin. This is the regenerate man. So Adam and Eve, they're created with the ability to sin, the liberty to choose sin, or the liberty to not sin. Fallen man is only at liberty to choose sin. He is bound by his new nature. He can do no other than that which he is. Right? Man cannot, and even secular scientists would agree that a man cannot be an eagle in nature no matter how much he desires to be an eagle or a quarterback. For, for Brad, I've heard him say that a few times. It's a deep desire of his. It's not going to happen. Right? In, in man's fallenness, he cannot act 
in a way that is not in accordance with his reality. And like sometimes that kind of frustrates us because we start to think, well, then it's not really freedom. Well, I maybe agree with you. It's not freedom as we think it is. I think that's why human responsibility is the better way theologically and categorically to think about it. And so we move to the regenerate man, the ability to not sin. So we believe salvation, let's, let's take a, like, a break. We believe that salvation is, is monergistic, right? We believe it's the sole work of God. You, you've heard, I've heard Brad say it since I've been here, monergistic or monergism is mono is in Greek one and ergo, monergism is one work. And so we do not believe that salvation is a form of cooperation, We believe that God in his sovereignty alone saves man out of his bound nature. That this fallen man stuck in his sin, only able to choose, only with the inclination to sin in his heart, does bring nothing to the table to be regenerate. Because God in his regenerative work does something that we cannot and would not ever choose to do. And that is change our nature. We cannot be an eagle, nor would we ever really choose to be one. And so God does the work singularly. And it doesn't matter how free we believe ourselves to be. You cannot desire to be so free that you can actually help God bring this about. And so when we talk about free will, that's why I started with the question, what do we really mean when we say we have free will? What are we trying to communicate? Are we trying to communicate a presupposition or a desire to be a particular amount of free Or are we saying, well, freedom is understood in accordance with the sovereignty of God and the nature of our sinfulness? Because if we're arguing on the basis of freedom, then we actually do undermine the freeness and totality of God's singular action in giving grace through Christ. You see that? So let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Do you see that singular, one-sided work? There is no cooperation from a dead man. There, There is no cooperation from one who is only inclined to sin and evil. There is no freedom in turning to God prior to God working in fallen man's heart. 
And so our freedom, no matter, again, how free we think we are, our freedom can never save us. It is actually an impossibility to be free enough to come to a saving knowledge of God. Look with me in, in, in John chapter 6, verse 63. Jesus says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The reason that this is not a forced will, the reason that we can say that we still have the freedom of the will, that God is not forcing us to do anything, is because you can't, actually force someone to do something that they are transcendently incapable of doing, right? The ability to choose God is beyond the means and capability of a fallen man. And so we still have the state of freedom, and yet God, not forcing us to do anything, actually changes our nature and gives us the ability, the motivations to be able to respond. Right? And so we, we don't ever find ourselves saying, well, God is overly sovereign and, and man is just kind of free. No. It may not fit in our pea-sized brains, but God is fully sovereign and humans are free and responsible. And one does not cancel the other. We... It, it, it is outside the bounds of our ability to enact, to begin the process of regeneration, or, or choose to be regenerated. No amount of freedom would ever bring us to that. How do we know? Because Adam and Eve had ultimate liberty, and they did not choose that which pleased God. When they had absolute, true, unfettered freedom. And so we see, as we move to the cross, that the application of the death and resurrection, so as the death and resurrection of Christ, as that is applied to us, the veil of sin that, is, that covers us in the fall is removed. The loss of liberty is reinstated at the cross to those who believe. So where we found ourselves once not at liberty to do that which pleases God, God enacts and gives us the gift of liberty to then against and inside of a sin nature to fight that and be set free to choose that which God desires. And so it's kind of a, 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 a sort of returning to Eden, Right? In one sense, we see this great despair and despondency of being cast out and not free to commune with God. And then at the cross in Christ, God says, Eden is open to you. You are free through Jesus Christ and his work for you to come back into communion with me. That is your new nature. You, you do have the ability to choose actually good things 
Look with me at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Fifteen through eighteen. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is Spirit. Do you see that language, being transformed? God enacting transformation so that you might not have the veil of sin over your eyes, that your nature be bound by sin alone and only inclined to sin. You have been removed to see and behold and experience the glories of God. In Romans chapter 6, there's a lot post-Romans 9, but I was kind of scared to go there. Romans 6, um, verses 6 through, actually, we're going to skip that one. It's too many. I want to get through this so you can ask some questions. Let's go to the final one. The glorified man, unable to sin. Non pas peccare. Our Lord come. The state of the glorified man. Look with me in, in, in 1 Corinthians 15. Verses 50 through 58. I think this one's worth reading. Verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but... Excuse me, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on the immortal. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortal, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O death, where is, or, o death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Let's stop there. We see that glorified man is brought into a state of imperishable and immortal body. That is, in heaven, man will live outside the bounds and reach of sin. Isn't that, I mean, we, we get that about heaven, right? We are like streets of gold, no sin, no tears. That's awesome. But when you think of it in these terms, in your current struggle and battle with sin, as a believer, you still struggle with sin. You still find yourself falling into those temptations. Is it not amazing that our sovereign God is going to one day release us from that? to be put in a state of freedom but not with the temptation to sin but with a better temptation. Look at this. Revelation 22, verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed. That is, there will be nothing like the fall ever again. There will be nothing accursed but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it and His servants will worship Him. 
You're being freed from sin. You are given freedom. Freedom not to choose sin, but freedom to worship God with no distraction, with no temptation to sin. Oh. So let's look at the final thing here really quickly. So the, the final point, the freedom to choose and the sovereign act of God in salvation. So if we are free to choose, right, if we are called to exert faith and God is sovereign in salvation, how does that make sense? Well, I think this is the first thing we must understand. Freedom and liberty in every instance comes about through the sovereignty of God. There is no freedom without sovereignty. And so to say, well, we, we have to be responsible to faith, and yet God is still sovereign. We are only responsible to faith because God is sovereign. But God's sovereignty doesn't require that he force or coerce man. Right? Him being sovereign does not necessitate him saying, you will believe. This is the moment you're going to go forward and you will believe because that's not the order of salvation. What we see is that God gives the gift of faith and then he gives us the freedom to act in faith. So let's just, let's just look. Let's, let's, let's end with this. John chapter 11. And I won't give too much commentary because Brad has, um, over the course of the months, talked about Lazarus a few times in Romans. John eleven, seventeen. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the one who is to come. Look at verse 26. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. How are you supposed to live first and then believe? Well, you can only do that if it is God who causes you, like Lazarus, to raise from the dead. He quickens you unto salvation through regeneration, and then he leaves you responsible to come out of the tomb in faith. God does not force Lazarus out. He only gives him what he needs to respond how God desires. And so let's end with this. Let's end with a healthy respect for the mystery of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Let's never forget that divine will always precedes human will. And that God's sovereignty is and must be supreme in the saving of souls. Whatever your view of free will is, whatever your theology, God's sovereignty must be supreme in the saving of souls. Luther says this, 
let all the free will in the world do all it can with all its strength, it will never give rise to a single instance of ability to avoid being hardened if God does not give the Spirit or of meriting mercy if it is left to his own strength. You have 15 seconds to ask me a question. Let's pray. Oh, we have one question. The freedom to choose to act on that faith? Uh, Yes, I can. Um, So what I'm saying, I'm using Lazarus there as my, my, my example, my model, my case study, is that God gives life, right? So he gives the, we believe that faith is a gift, right? We believe that it's a fruit of the Spirit. It's not something that we conjure up. And so God, in regenerating us, gives us the ability to receive him in faith. And yet, it is still our responsibility to have faith and believe, right? I think that's in verse 26 what he's saying. Everyone who lives, right? Everyone who becomes alive and believes shall never die. Does that help? If you want to, all right, I'm going to pray because I don't want you to be angry at me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us this opportunity to come into your word. I pray that it has been helpful to us as we think more deeply on your truths. And God, how we relate as sinners to you and the marvel of your free grace in Christ. God, may we never find ourselves elevating our ability to that of sovereignty when we are the clay and you are the potter. Help us to rest there and find our mercy and your good grace there. God, may we be encouraged. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.